Today we find ourselves once again in our sermon series on Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, this book that is looking to interpret life under the sun, what Solomon sees and what life really looks like. And today, Solomon is looking at the world and he sees the reality of oppression and injustice that this world is plagued with. So after 3,000 years, we recognize that the world does not look that much different than the world that Solomon describes here. That we still have the same realities that are nothing new under the sun. There's the same wickedness and oppression and injustice that was there in Solomon's day, it is, it is here still. We look at the news, we, we read the newspaper, and we see the reality of the world that we live in. We see that fear and terrorism and, and all of these things are stealing our peace and our unjust things that are, are ruling this world. We have to face that reality. And when we see the reality of this world, we start to ask the question of, where is God? What is he doing? What is he up to? And then, what do we do with all this evil in the world? How do we make, what do we make of it? How do we interpret it? And then what do we do about it? How are we called to respond as Christian people? So today we're going to be looking at how Solomon reflects on the fact that the world is unjust that there is oppression, and we're going to see his observations. He basically sees that, that wickedness is universal. There's no place it doesn't penetrate. And he sees that, that that sin results in oppression and injustice in this world. But luckily we have another thing that we're going to see, something that Solomon could not. The fact that in Jesus Christ, God is actually working to remedy these things. That he's bringing justice, He's restoring humanity, and he's bringing us to a real place of comfort in Jesus Christ. So let's look at Ecclesiastes 3, starting at verse 16. We're going to be going through chapter 4, verse 3. If you're looking at your black Bibles, that's on 554, if that's helpful to you. So Ecclesiastes chapter 3, starting at verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun... That in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them. That they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. 
but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. All right, we have our work cut out for us this morning. So first of all, in Solomon's kind of pursuit of finding justice in this world, he has to recognize that wickedness is pervasive. So last week we talked about how there's all these times and seasons, the kind of ebb and flow, and Solomon recognizes that interweaved into every single element, every single action, there is wickedness. Even in the places where there should be justice and righteousness. In the courts, the places of justice, there is wickedness. In the holy places, the religious institutions, the places that should be beacons of righteousness, there is wickedness. And Solomon sees that this runs through all of life, coloring it, tainting it, making it what it should not be. So we often think that maybe we need to defend ourselves from such attacks. He's convinced ourselves, no, no, our country, our country isn't full of wickedness. I know most of you have given up hope on that, that we have resigned ourselves to it. Maybe you think that you need to defend Christianity. The, the Christian church, no, we're not full of wickedness. We have to admit that, that we are. We look at church history, it's, a, it's sometimes a bleak picture. All of, all of our churches, our church included, is full of wickedness. Solomon has seen that. And in this time and in this age, we wonder why God hasn't done something about it. Why is he letting the world run rampant with sin and with unrighteousness, with corruption? So we talked last week about, about these times and seasons. And Solomon thinks about that as well. And he's thinking, well, if there is a time for everything, surely there is a time for justice and for judgment. There must be. Verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. He's looking at the times and he's saying, surely that time needs to come eventually. If there is a time for everything, maybe that time will come. But we can feel that he's a little bit discouraged. That he's seen the times come and go, and yet God has not come and brought justice into the world. So he wonders, like, what's, what's going on, God? Why haven't you done anything yet? Before he starts to accuse God, though, he, he starts to speculate. Why hasn't God come yet? And his reasoning is verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they might see that they are themselves but beasts. Maybe God is testing us to see that we are beasts. Now that's probably not where we first go. The all the wickedness that maybe God is actually up to something. That he is testing us. The thing is that maybe God knows about the state of the world. Maybe he knows that we're wicked. He knows that there's something wrong, and it's we who don't understand yet. We don't understand the nature of this world. We don't understand what our role is. Because we often do blame the wrong, the wrong things. We look to the wrong places. We usually blame the institutions. Say that the institutions are broken, that they're corrupt. We blame the churches. We blame the government. We blame the other party. We blame other nations, other religions. 
And God is trying to show us that in doing that, we're actually missing the point. We're missing what he's trying to show us. That institutions are wicked because people are wicked. People are sinful. And so if we ask, why hasn't God come to judge this world yet? It's because we haven't understood yet. We haven't understood, which is a really, a really hard thing to realize, is that we are but animals. And that is the harsh reality that, that God has to, has to show us and we have to have our eyes open to. So Solomon says he's reflecting on this and thinking, is there any proof that, that men are any different than the animals? And he looks at verse, verse 19. They, they die all the same. Verse 19. For what happens to the children of man, what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts. For all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. So Solomon looks at the evidence, the evidence of what happens to man, and he can't see any proof that man and animals are any different. They seem to go to the same place. They have the same end. And that's not the only similarity between man and animals. So Solomon is just pointing out that men seem to die like animals, but the reality is that sometimes we live like animals as well. We live to fulfill our animal instincts. We live just out of whatever animalistically comes to our, to our hearts and our minds and we act on it. So we might growl and bark and bite and scratch when we don't get the things that we want. Or like cats, we might run after shiny things and never seem to catch them. Running after the lasers. They <laughs> always escape us. Right? We can be foolish in that way. Or maybe we're like roosters. Right? The roosters we keep in our backyards, kind of puffed up. <laughs> Making a show of ourselves that we're the top of the roost and we peck at those who try to compete with us. These are kind of goofy examples, but scripture actually, scripture goes, goes right to the heart. More pointedly, it says, like dogs, we return to our vomit. We basically eat the same poison and throw it up and do it so again and again and again. That like pigs washed clean, we return to the mud. Or probably the most brutal one is in, in Jeremiah, where he talks about men being like camels in heat, wandering through the desert, sniffing at the wind in lust, looking for adulterous lovers in the wilderness. Now, that, that is not what we want to hear. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's offensive. Especially because we've been raised on Genesis. We've been raised to, to hear that man is made in the image of God. That man is, is a sort of God to the creatures. God's appointed head over the creatures. We're to lead and love and care for this creation. And we're not to descend into it. And that was, that was the original purpose. That is the reality. It's not like Solomon hasn't been reading his Bible. He read Genesis. But he basically says, if that's the way it's supposed to be, I don't see it anywhere. I can't see it anymore. 
so that this image of God that we're created in, that's supposed to make us these glorious beings who are beautiful and creative and powerful, it has been marred in some sense. So we're created to reflect God, but in the fall, in Adam, we have, we have fallen. We have fallen from this place of glory and fallen, fallen quite far to become like the creatures themselves. So, we who live like the beasts are also destined to die like the beasts. All right, that is a sobering reality. Now, what do we do with that? First of all, that should change the way that we see this world. When we look out into the world and see evil, in one sense, we shouldn't be as surprised as we are. But in another sense, we can't say that these are other people's problems. Or that the problem is with so-and-so institution. That the government's messed up. And maybe we just need to change things a little bit. The problem with humanity and with the world is sin. It is the fact that we are fallen. And sin has affected not just the people out there, it has affected our very hearts. It has affected my heart and your heart. We have been infected by it. We can't actually solve the problem until we understand what it is. And the problem is not out there. The problem is not with kind of the things we've built. The problem is with ourselves. The problem is sin. And sin leaves us as animals. Verse 21. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Those are not questions we should have to ask. Those shouldn't be mysteries to us. Does the spirit of man, is it any different than the beast's? We shouldn't have to wonder about that, and yet we do. That is the reality of life under sin. We shouldn't have to wonder, what will happen to us after we die? Oh, we still see no evidence that we are going to live afterwards. That shouldn't be the case either. This is the sad state we are in as people who have fallen to become like the creatures. All right. So some of you might think that, that that's really heavy and you feel the weight of that. But the reality is that a lot of our culture would not have a problem with that. To say that we are animals is what they've always believed. That's what biology has taught them. That is what their worldview is, is that no, humanity really is no different than animals. They die the same and they act the same because they are the same. And we wonder, uh, maybe they're right. We look at the world and we say, okay, I can't see the image of God oftentimes. Maybe they are right. But that brings us to our second point. That this sin, this fall results in oppression. Oppression. So there are things that we get upset, up, upset about in this world that if we are just creatures, you cannot explain. So take a cat that kills a mouse. No one calls the cat evil. No one takes the cat to court. Right? The cat isn't under judgment. The cat is just being a cat. Take two hippos. They're tearing at each other. 
biting each other. Right? No one calls that, like, that's not manslaughter or something. No, it's just hippos being hippos. They fight over territory. That's what they do. There are birds that steal other birds' nests. That's not a home invasion. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's just what they do. Birds are birds. That's what they do. All right. But when we see the same thing happen among humans, we do not respond the same. When we see 50 people massacred, we do not say that that's just humans being humans. That is great evil. That is an atrocity. And we recognize the difference. And so we know that humanity is not supposed to do the things that they do. We know that we're not supposed to do a lot of the things that we do. And we have to accept the fact that if we hate terrorism and murder and genocide and slavery, abuse, all of these things, we have to recognize that we do not treat ourselves as animals. We put humans in different categories. Rightly so. That is what the image of God, which is still intact in some senses, teaches us. That humanity is supposed to be something greater. Chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. So we see all this oppression, the powerful taping from the weak. And if we were just animals, we would say, well, that's just survival of the fittest. That is just to the victor goes the spoils. That's the way the animal world works. And if we are just one of the animals, that's how we would think. But we don't. When we see these things, we hold people responsible. And we recognize that there is something evil going on, that something is wrong, and we demand justice. And the fact is that we can only have that justice and know what is good and what is right if there is a God and we believe in him and we put him first. You can't throw out God and then demand justice because otherwise there's no basis for judgment. There's no basis for justice. There's no basis to say what is good or what is evil. You have maybe preference that I don't like when people are murdered, but that's just preference. And you, To exert your preference on another person isn't really fair. That's not justice. Or maybe you say, what's happening to other people? I don't want to happen to me. That's just preference as well that you would prefer that those things not happen. But there, that's no basis for justice. That's no basis to stop oppression. That's no basis to call anything really evil. We've thrown out God and then demanded that there is justice. <coughs> kind of chopped off our hand and saying to, to keep writing. The reality is that, that we believe in the things that God has believed in, the things that he says are true but we want to just deny God. All right, so we can't have justice and we can't have goodness without a God. But if that's true, we have some questions for this God. We have some questions for him. If God is real, why doesn't he do anything about this world? 
We ask him maybe, why does he put up with evil people? Or why does he give power to evil people? Is he not powerful? Is he not powerful enough to stop it? Or we might wonder, maybe he is powerful enough, but he's just apathetic. Does he not care? And that's where Solomon is, in one sense, blaming God. Behold the tears of the oppressed, and they have no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there is power. There is no one to comfort them. So we have to have a God, but God brings up all of these questions. God, why don't you, why don't you stop the oppressors? Why don't you bring comfort to those who are oppressed? And we can accuse God of being apathetic. We often do. When we see the world as it is, we often do accuse God of being apathetic. Or of just holding back his hands. Sometimes we take, him a, take power away from him and say, well, maybe he can't do anything. Scripture doesn't let us do that. It says that he is all-powerful. But before we can actually start to blame God, first we'd have to acquit ourselves. And if we give ourselves a hard look, we recognize that we're guilty of the same things we try to accuse God of. First of all, in our sin we are oppressors. We don't like to think like that. Because we like to keep most of our sin in categories of the, well, they don't hurt people. Those sins. But the thing is that every time we choose to sin, we become people who are more willing to use and to mistreat and abuse people. We become more selfish, more self-centered. That is actually kind of the, the groundwork to become an oppressive people. Sin actually turns us into those kind of people. And oftentimes that's what sin does. We get angry. We are misusing other people. We take from them. We are... We are oppressing them. And so we have to recognize that we are not innocent bystanders here, that, that we are oppressors to some extent. That is what sin does to us. All right. But maybe you're, you're reluctant to, to like take on that one. I don't, I don't think I'm a oppressor. That's, that's a little too much. But then, then we have the other regard where maybe we're not oppressors, but we do not give the oppressed the comfort that they, that they really deserve. We say that God is apathetic, but oftentimes we are just as apathetic. That we don't like that there's evil, but we also don't want to actually change it. We oftentimes just use our power to, to build walls around those things so that we don't have to feel the oppression of other people. And if we're forced to see it, we kind of have our blinders on, and if we're forced to actually look at something that is, is real oppression, is real evil, we try to muster up some, some guilt, maybe some feelings over it, like, oh, I, I, I do feel bad about that, and then move on. So as much as we want to throw all these accusations at God, we have to feel those accusations on ourselves first. That we are oppressors and that we offer very little comfort to those who are oppressed. Which, if you look at that really seriously, that leaves us in hopelessness and utter despair, which is where Solomon goes next. Verse 2. 
I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. So we're slaves to sin. We are oppressors. And even when we see those things, we are too apathetic to do anything about it. Now that is a sorry state for us to be in. I said that we would see that our, our stains are, are very crimson today. They, they, are, they are crimson. That, that is the sorry truth. But that takes us to our third point. And this is the thing that Solomon was not able to see. This was not his time. He wasn't able to see what God was really up to. That God is actually seeking to change and remedy and fix all of these things in Jesus Christ. That he is offering real justice and humanity. He's ending oppression. He gives comfort and hope. In Jesus Christ, God proves that he cares about justice. So just take, take some examples from Jesus' life. Jesus goes into the temple and he starts turning over tables. Because there are people there who are selling the poor and the faithful. They're kind of ripping them off, using the fear of God so that they would offer more sacrifices. And Jesus will have nothing of that. Starts turning the tables over. Or you have Jesus against the Pharisees who are using religious rituals to kind of prove that they're better than people, to make other people feel sinful so that they can feel holy and righteous. And Jesus goes to those people and he tells them what they can do with their righteous deeds. He's very clear about that. He's, he's having nothing of it. And we like that Jesus. That's a good Jesus. The Jesus that like goes up against the government, shows them how selfish and corrupt they are. And we wonder why that kind of Jesus doesn't come back. The Jesus that kind of is bashing in heads and taking names and, and doing the work that we want him to do. That's oftentimes what we want. And it's not that Jesus isn't like that. But the problem is that there's, there's a bigger problem going on. We only really want that if we think that we are the heroes. If that we're the good guys. That we're the good guys and we want Jesus to come back and take out all the villains. But we are, we are the villains in the story as well. We're those who have aligned ourselves against God. That we, in our sin, that's what we're doing. We're being the enemies of God. And so if we just want, Jesus, come judge everyone. We're, he would judge us too. He would judge me, he would judge you, and we'd be wiped away. And so before Jesus has to just come and judge everything, Jesus first comes and he, starts, he restores humanity. This son of God comes and becomes a real human, and he shows us what real humanity looks like. To not just be a beast. So when Jesus gets angry, what does he get angry at? He gets angry at people being abused or mistreated. He gets angry at people who are cruel. He's not just getting angry because he's not getting what he wants. Throwing a temper tantrum. We have Jesus. He has power. And how does he use that power? He doesn't use that power just to, to get more of his own. He uses that power to heal and to feed people, to resurrect the dead. 
That is real humanity. He's worthy of worship and honor. He's God. And yet he comes and he's homeless and poor for his whole life. He serves the outcast. He welcomes the little children. He deserves all this honor and he gives it to the weakest and the lowest, the most worthless according to this society. And then as his, his grand finale, the one who created life dies the death of the animal. He goes down to the depths. He is killed for the sake of sinful humanity. Killed for all of their oppression. Killed to, to save them from that same death themselves. So that was God's idea of justice. To kill his own son that we might be saved. So that justice could win without just wiping out every single one of us. And that's in a sense why there is still suffering now. There is still suffering so that God can make sure that people receive this judgment of Christ in place of a personal judgment of their own. He's making sure that people receive Jesus Christ's judgment, that they may be saved. Now, there are lots of other reasons why suffering is, is present in this world and in this life. But one of the reasons is so that more people may be saved. That suffering continues so that grace and salvation might continue as well. God is, is not rejecting us. God is not ignoring us. He's found the one way where he could actually save us, keep justice, and not destroy every single one of us. He's, he's creative in that sense. We are not creative. We just want him to judge everything. Jesus Christ, he's made a way that is better than what we think we want. So, Jesus comes and he establishes a new humanity. Becomes this new human that proves that mankind can live forever. That humanity can endure forever if they are not under the effects of sin. Talks about that when, when Jesus died, death could not hold them because there was no sin there. Humanity without sin is eternal. It raises from the dead. They can't be held down. And that's what, that's what Jesus did. His resurrection was proof that there is life after death. That this is not the end. That sin is, does not win the hand. That Ecclesiastes, this, this resolution that life is so bleak, it does not win. That Solomon actually has not seen the whole picture. And when Jesus raises from the dead, he ascends into heaven. He comes to life, ascends into heaven, and he became the proof that the spirit of man does go upward. We had that question. Is it, how do I know that there's a difference? The difference is that Jesus Christ has done it. Now, when I first read Ecclesiastes, I was thinking, well, this is Solomon. He's just being a materialist. He's being an evidentialist. He just wants to see the evidence. But we live by faith. We live by faith. We live by what we don't see, what we can't touch, what we don't know. And that was going to be the presentation, that we ought to live by faith. But the thing is, that that's actually false in some sense. We aren't against evidence. 
weren't against the tangible truth that we want to see someone raised from the dead. The fact is that Jesus Christ is that proof. We aren't just believing in some, some wish or something that we even just read in the Old Testament. We see that Jesus Christ has restored that. That there is life after death. That we know where we are going after death. We believe in the testimony of hundreds of people who have seen Jesus alive. Who spoke about it. And who weren't just people who, oh, well, those are old people in old times and they just liked miracles. No, it wasn't just some wishful fantasy. They were willing to die because they had seen Jesus live. They believed there was life after death because Jesus Christ proved it. That doubt was gone in their minds. We are people who live by evidence and live by proof. And Jesus Christ, now that he has ascended, now that he is in heaven, he has proven in one sense that he believes in justice. There can be justice with salvation. And he will come again and bring ultimate judgment and ultimate justice. Now, we don't like that. But the thing is that there are people who need that. That, that is part of the comfort of the oppressed is to know that there will be judgment and there will be justice. That is a comfort to them. Now, that is not their only comfort, of course. Their other comfort is that when Jesus Christ comes, he'll establish a new kingdom. And in that new kingdom, everything that they lost, everything that was, that was taken from them will be restored. Our highest idea of justice is sometimes an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But in Jesus' kingdom, justice looks like you lost an eye. Here's a new eye. It's restored. You get back everything that you lost. That's what a new creation is going to mean. An eternity where all the things that were lost and taken from us will be restored. All right. So what does this mean for us? First of all, we need to receive the judgment of Jesus as opposed to our own judgment. There's only two options. You can be judged and go up on this cross yourself, or Jesus can do it for you. We are called to receive what Jesus has done. And when you receive this, this judgment of Jesus, you don't just receive the judgment and kind of kind of like you give someone 20 bucks. No. You're united to Jesus. You're with Jesus. And you become like Jesus. So that what he did on earth is what you do on earth. The man that he was on earth, you become. You actually embody this new humanity that Jesus represented. And part of that, what is your task as a new human? Your task as a new human. Your task as a new human is to fight against the wickedness of the world. You fight against oppression. You fight for justice. But you start that in your own heart. You fight against the wickedness. You fight against the oppression that is present in your own heart that sin has created. By looking at Jesus Christ, by loving Jesus Christ, you see that there is a new human to embody. And by the Spirit, we have power to do that. To live as new people. To be free from sin. Never to be perfect, but to be free from sin in a real sense. And we're called to persevere in that task. 
But it's not just kind of this spiritual, ethereal thing. We are then supposed to take that justice, to take that love, to take that life into the real world and fight against oppression, to comfort the oppressed, to weep with those who weep. That is our calling as, as real Christians. That is what Jesus Christ did. And we follow our Savior where he went. We do what he did. Now, I recognize that we haven't mobilized our church to do that yet. Um, we have an excuse. We aren't that old. But part of the vision of the church is to bring justice and mercy to the, to the poor and the needy and those who need to see what Christ has done. And my goal and my hope is that we can create a team to do that. We're working on that. To create a team that would actually work towards mercy and justice and comfort for the oppressed. So if that is your heart, if God lays that on you, that you, you need to do that work, I want to hear from you. We want to be a church that, that does that, that doesn't just talk about this, but actually embodies it. And if that is your heart, then I, I would love to hear from you. Hope that's all of your heart. But not everyone can do it, so. All right. Finally, when we look out into this world, we're supposed to see what the reality is. And not, not blame the secondary sources. We don't get, get lost on the religious extremists or the political parties or the social agendas. We look behind those things and we see that sin is the problem. And we see sin is the problem. We don't just throw up our hands and say, well, I can't do anything about it. We have the solution. The solution is Jesus Christ. And we let that solution enter our own hearts and change us from the inside out. And then we offer that solution to other people. We offer that solution to the world. We are not ignorant of what is wrong. And we have the one hope that, that Solomon couldn't see. There is no other hope. There is no other life. There is no other way of eternity, of justice, of peace. So we bring Jesus Christ to this world. That is our calling. We have chances to do that this summer. In small ways, we have the VBS, right? We have the Cecil Fair. We can bring our friends here. We can bring them to community group. That is the calling. It may seem simple, right? Simple or even silly. But we start one soul at a time with the real solution. Bringing one soul, Jesus Christ, showing them him that he is our savior.